Good morning. Good morning in Bokertov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. I want to thank our sponsors, as always, dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. David ben Menachem Manash Neshama should have an Aliyah, as always. If you'd like to sponsor a particular class, please email lee, L-E-E, at birasonline.org, lee at birasonline.org. This morning, this week, we have the privilege of studying Parshas B'Shalach together. B'Shalach is a rich Parsha that continues the story, the narrative of our exodus from Mitzrayim, really the culmination of that last word. And not only did Hashem spare us and save us, and He redeemed us, and then He took us, the Ga'alti, what we spoke about two weeks ago, the notion of the Ga'alti, that He redeemed us, took place when we saw our oppressor drown in the sea. We no longer had to look over our shoulder in fear, worry, and anxiousness, but then we were truly free. Not only were we taken out of Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim was taken out of us. There is so much to talk about in Parshas B'Shalach, but alas, this week is Yeshiva week, and uh, I will be with my family, but I did not want to uh, skip altogether, so we'll have a little bit of an abbreviated shir this morning, and I appreciate everybody's understanding, but just to be able to capture some of the ideas of our wonderful Parsha. Vayhi b'shalach paro esam, and it was when Paro sent out the people, which Paro is credited, and of course Hashem didn't lead them by the way of the land of Plishtim, even though it was closer, it would have been the more direct route. It's a very fragile people, a very vulnerable people. They might have turned, they might have come right back around. So the people are stuck between the proverbial and literal rock and hard place. The Egyptians are pursuing them from behind. They arrive at the sea in front of them, and they don't know what to do, and they panic. And great debate ensues until Nachshon ben Aminadav, we know, Yehuda's great-grandson, takes the courageous move, puts a foot, a toe in the water, keeps walking till it gets higher and higher. The sea splits, they come out on the other side, and they sing a song. Rav Nason of Breslov, the great student of Rav Nachman, writes in his Likutei Alachos that Tu B'Shvat is always adjacent to Shabbat Shira, and it's no different this year, that in a couple days we'll celebrate the holiday of Tu B'Shvat, 15th of Shvat, the Rosh Hashanah of Ilanot, the new year for the fruit, for the trees. And it's in the same week, it's the same just a few days before Parshas B'Shalach, which is Shabbos Shira. Sometimes they even fall on the same day on Shabbos itself. And this overlap is not coincidental. The fact that they come out and they coincide is not a randomness of the calendar. It has an intrinsic connection. And Rav Nason of Breslov offers a very deep and mystical explanation, but I want to share with you a different one that I saw, and I want to offer you one of my own. For the farmer, sustenance, income, livelihood, they're all determined by the size of last year's crop, by the health and the success of what's produced, and that's determined by the well-being and the health of the soil, of the farm, and how it gets watered, how much sunlight, how much air. In Mitzrayim, in Egypt, sustenance was determined by the Nile and the Nile's willingness to water and nourish the fields. That's why Paro tried to take responsibility as if he was the, uh, the god, as if he was responsible for the Niles irrigating the land. And uh, he didn't want to look imperfect or even human. He went to relieve himself at the Nile. We wrote about that last week. It was no wonder the Egyptians neglected Hashem and they worshiped the Nile. They saw the Nile as a deity, as a god, because the Nile was the source of their income, of their livelihood. When the Jews leave Mitzrayim, they walk away from a place that's characterized by this hedonism and materialism and the result of the certainty of the Nile, and they transition to a whole new way of being, a whole new lifestyle, to an agricultural system that relies not on the certainty of the Nile, but on the uncertainty of rain. 
Rain is unpredictable. Rain is volatile, right? Rain is erratic. There can be different kinds of rain. There's a nourishing and a nurturing rain, and there's a severe and a dangerous and a damaging downpour. Not all rain is created equal. That's why we daven and tefillah's geshem for a rain which is levracha v'lolaklala, a rain that will sustain us and not a rain that destroys. It can rain conveniently and productively. It can rain in a way that disrupts and interferes. So when one relies on the rain to survive, when one relies on the rain to live, to thrive, you cannot help but turn to the source of rain. The farmer who lives dependent on the rain can't help but be drawn to pray to provider of that rain. Mishnah teaches that at least according to Beis Hillel, to Bishvat, the 15th, as we said, is the Rosh Hashanah of Ilanos, is the Rosh Hashanah of trees. And Chazal, the Gemara Rosh Hashanah, and Daf Yudal and tells us, why is that date chosen, the 15th of Shvat? Because by that date, most of the year's rains will have fallen. And therefore, hopefully promising a year of physical blessing, a year of bounty, a year of income, a year of not worrying. When we were freed, freed from the decadence and the gluttony of Egypt, when we were freed from the relying on and worshiping the Nile, and we were led to a lifestyle that depends on Hashem for nourishment instead, what was the result? We sang Shira. And so to each year on Rosh Hashanah for trees, at the time we benefited from the bounty of the rain, we celebrate and sing with gratitude to Hashem again. So the simple first reason of why there's a uh, connection between Tu B'Shvat and Shabbat Shira, why Reb Nassim of Breslov says that we always celebrate them in tandem and together, is because leaving Egypt was the transition from the certainty of the Nile to the relying, the uncertainty of the rain of turning to Hashem. And when we left Egypt, we sang Shira, we turned to the heavens, we turned to God. And while we don't live in an agrarian society, we're not farmers, and we don't depend on the rain, it's still incumbent on us that we too have to recognize and appreciate Hashem's graciousness and that we should sing Shira even when we go to the supermarket and we predictably find the food on the shelf, we should no less sing the Shira that the Jewish people sang themselves. But I want to offer another suggestion of the connection between Shabbat Shira and Tu B'Shvat, really to introduce our study of Parshas B'Shalach. Research shows that on average by the age of 18, we will have been praised and encouraged 30,000 times. And after 30,000 times, most of them come by the age of three. When the baby first smiles, we clap. We say, yay, and we act like they finished Shas or won the lottery or graduated with a uh, PhD. And then when they roll over or say their first word or take their first step, each is greeted with a celebration and revelry and joy. And then somehow along the way, the human psyche, somehow along the way, it's just the way it is, we stop celebrating. We stop celebrating when we get things right. And instead, we start criticizing when we get it wrong. We start stop marking what's done correctly, and we start calling attention to what's done incomplete. We stop pausing to acknowledge achievement and accomplishment, and we start challenging ourselves and others to quickly move on to the next, and to the newest goal, and the next ambition, and the next thing that we're trying to achieve. And maybe what Parsha Shira, Shabbat Shira, and Tubashvat have in common, and the lesson that they indeed teach, is that when you face a harsh and difficult challenge, when you come out on the other side, Pause to celebrate before moving on. Give yourself permission to experience and to lean in and to celebrate an accomplishment, an achievement, having gotten something right. When the Jewish people stood on the opposite bank of the Yamsuf, safely across and finally free. It was the first time in 210 years they could exhale. They could breathe a sigh of relief. They could take in their newfound freedom. They didn't make it to the other side and then continue to walk. They made it to the other side and they paused. They made it to the other side and they stopped and they sang Shira. They celebrated the success before moving on in the journey 
towards the next destination. Tu B'Shvat marks the day when the earliest blooming trees in Eretz Yisrael, it's a connection that we all have wherever we live in the world, Tu B'Shvat connects us to the Holy Land. But on Tu B'Shvat, the earliest blooming trees emerge from their winter sleep and they begin a new fruit-bearing cycle. And Rashi explains that it's this point that the ground has become saturated with rain. It's this time that the sap starts to rise in the trees, enabling the fruit to begin to bud. The trees have survived another cold and harsh winter. Not here in South Florida, but elsewhere, the no leaves in the tree. And if you look around, it still looks like it's the middle of the winter. But beneath the surface, the sap is rising and the bud is forming. And beneath the surface, the, the surface, the trees are coming out another winter on the other side. And Tubishvat on the calendar, when most of the rain has fallen and the ground is saturated with it and the sap is beginning to rise and the trees are coming alive once again, we pause to acknowledge and to celebrate and to say to the Ribbonu Shalom, to the Almighty, thank you. Thank you. We're living in a world moving at such a fast pace that we hardly have time or allow ourselves to stop and to celebrate. At work, we finish one project and we move on to the next. At home, the moments all seem to blend together. The days, the months, the years, they run into one another. But we have to learn to stop and to pause and to celebrate the small successes and to mark the modest milestones in our life. Coming out the other side of our Yamsuf, coming through the darkness and harshness of our winter, and the bud begins to form. Tom Peters, the author of the best-selling book, In Search of Excellence, has a simple but I think a great piece of advice. It applies to marriage and parenting and to religious growth, Torah, and all of life. He says, quote, celebrate what you want to see more of. That's it. Celebrate what you want to see more of. A spouse accomplishes a goal professionally or personally, stop and celebrate. A child achieves a milestone and does something worthy of acknowledgement, should be celebrated, applauded, just like when they were a baby and they turned over and took the first step. You don't have to gush or coo, but you can hug or, hug or high five and offer praise and give credit and say thank you. Because pausing to celebrate, it's not just a nice thing to do, it's not just a saying shira on the other side. Tu B'Shvat is not just a day that we don't say tachanun and we're not allowed to fast, but they're tangible benefits. Do you know that when you celebrate, dopamine is released into the brain. Setting goals and achieving them and celebrating feels good, not only spiritually or emotionally, but physically, and it does is it motivates us to set the next goal and to do it. We know we do this in Jewish religious life all the time. Simchas Torah, we finish the cycle of reading the Torah and we stop, we have an entire holiday around it. But you don't have to wait for Simchas Torah to make a seam on the whole Torah. You make a seam every time you finish a Masechta. And Reb Moshe and Achuvan or Achaim Chelek Aleph in Simon Kuf Nun Zayin says you can make a seam not only when you finish Shas or a Masechta, but for a person who's just beginning, if it took great effort and toil and time, you can make a seam on one page of Gemara, on one book of Tanakh. It's incredible because the more you stop and celebrate, the more motivated you'll be to continue and to build upon that success. So whatever the goal, learning, or in practicing patience, or weight loss, or saving money, or making it to minion, or giving staka, whatever it is that you're trying to achieve, when you mark a milestone, stop and celebrate it. When you come out on the other side of the Yamsuf, sing Shira for it. When you make it through the harshness of winter and the tree comes alive, what was latent underneath it all along begins to regenerate and rejuvenate, begins to bud and come forth once again, stop and celebrate and say thank you because it'll push you towards that next goal. So it's not a coincidence this week we'll celebrate and mark both Tu B'Shvat as well as Shabashira. The two have this very, very uh, close connection. They have this uh, tremendous sense of an overlap. Now the Torah tells us in our parasha, Perak Yigimah Pasuk, 
Yud Ches. Torah tells us, we know we came out of Egypt. We were only 20% who survived. Most died there. We spoke about it last week's parsha. Moshe carried the bones of Yosef with him. Why? Yosef had made the people promise. They took an oath and they swore. And in fulfillment of that oath, now is the time they take Moshe, takes Yosef bones. And the Medrash Telem tells us, Hayam Ra'avayanos, we're going to read about how the sea saw and it split. Mara, what did the sea see that made it split? Ra'aronos Yosef, it saw the coffin of Yosef. So what happened? Yosef ran out. He fled from the sin, from the relentless pursuit of the wife of Potiphar. The Pasuk says, He ran outside. In the merit of Yosef running away from the relentless pursuit and proposition of the wife of Potiphar, the sea also ran and it split and it made way for the Jewish people to go. Asks Rav Druk, and wonders of Druk, why was it that the splitting of the sea was in the merit of Yosef? We know the people were on the lowest level of the 49 levels of Tumah. They were undeserving and unworthy. But Moshe and Aaron, they had great leaders who were present. There were great leaders who were there. So why wasn't that enough to earn the merit? Why did Yosef's merit need to be invoked in order for the sea to split? Why didn't the sea split simply in the merit of Moshe and Aaron, themselves great leaders. How about Miriam? We know that Miriam the Be'er, the Be'er, the water source that nourishes and hydrates them through the travels in the desert, comes in the merit of Miriam. So if indeed Miriam had all this merit, why wasn't it enough to the sea to split? If it came later for the Be'er and the Man, Ananiah, Kavod, Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, why wasn't that enough? What was it special or specific about Yosef? And here says Rav Druk Nireh, The whole notion of the splitting of the sea was precipitated, not in comfort and not in convenience, but rather with Mesiris Nefesh, with selflessness, with risk, and with sacrifice. You know, to me every year I can, I can see the picture in my mind's eye. The Jewish people are standing on the banks of the sea. The Egyptians are pursuing them. They live in fear of their life despite the miracles they've already seen. And everybody's turning to one another and pointing a finger. You should do this. I have this idea. This is what should happen next. Everybody's offering their criticism about the pandemic, the plague, about what needs to be done and how it should be handled differently. And while everybody's offering criticism, everyone's offering condemnations, everybody's offering suggestions, one individual's quiet, silently. He doesn't raise his voice, but rather he raises his actions. Everyone else is collapsing in prayer. Nachshon ben Aminadav puts one foot in front of another and enters the sea. And in do so, he takes an extraordinary risk, extraordinary sacrifice. He could have been swept away. He could have drowned. He could have given his life. But he says, I trust in God. And I trust by putting one foot in front of the other. Sometimes we pray with words and sometimes we pray with actions. And says, Nachshon, I'm showing my trust and my faith in God. I'm praying with my actions by putting one foot in front of another. So what precipitates the splitting of the sea is not faith alone, but is a specific type of faith, a faith of Mesiris Nefesh, being Moser Nefesh, sacrifice, 
When the tribes were all standing at the sea and they were debating and arguing, I'm not going first. And the other one says, I'm not going first, you go first. What happens? Nachshab doesn't wait and he's not passive, he's not a spectator and he's not a critic. You know what he does? He takes it upon himself. Follow me. And he steps in. Only when Nachshon was willing to engage with Mesiris Nefesh, only when he was willing to take a risk, only when he was willing to put it all on the line, that's what precipitates, that's what brings about the miracle. You can't be a spectator to your own miracle. You can't wait for it to happen. We don't rely on miracles. You are the miracle. We create the miracle. When we show the trust and the faith, when we're willing to sacrifice and be selfless, we become the miracle. The miracle that is the Jewish people, the miracle that is our survival. The Fizem Mavur says of Juk, you can see then Shalanikrayam Bavur, Zuchu Yosem Shal Moshe Aaron. The decedent split in the merit of Moshe and Aaron. It relied, it needed, it waited, it depended on the merit of sacrifice, of selflessness. Who is our great patriarch? Who is our great forefather? Who is our great predecessor? Who displays almost an unparalleled Mesiris Nefesh? It's not Yosef HaTzadik. Yosef was in Egypt. Yosef has been abandoned and sold by his slavery, by his family. Yosef, who has nothing to lose and is lonely. Yosef has been falsely accused. Nevertheless, he's Moser Nefesh. It's not easy. A young, virile, vibrant man, charismatic and handsome, and a woman is throwing herself at him, and he says no. And why? Because it's wrong. Because it's improper. Because it's beneath him. It's pasnish. He's Moser Nefesh. It takes tremendous mysterious Nefesh. Nas HaChutzah, he runs outside, and he risks himself. And he pays for it. It's not without risk. And he pays for it because he ends up being falsely accused and sitting and languishing in prison. Only that's Chus of Mysterious Nefesh could lead to and precipitate the splitting of the sea. And that's what the Medrash means when it sees the coffin of a Yosef. Yosef who goes against his nature, we've explained many times. The natural thing, a natural young man, the natural urge the compulsive behavior of this natural young man would have been to give in and to be with the wife of Potiphar. He displays a supernatural courage. And so too the natural thing is for water molecules to stick together, but the water displays a supernatural phenomena of splitting in two in the merit of Yosef. So the Tzorah Amor asks, one second, they've already left Egypt in last week's Parsha. Tenth plague occurred, Kachatzos Laila, next morning, Bachipazon, with alacrity, speed, and zeal, they left Egypt. So when did Moshe have to fulfill the promise to Yosef? When they left Egypt. The bones have been with him already for a while. Why are we first being told now when they're standing opposite the sea? Why are we first being told now that what? That the bones of Yosef were there. They've been with them since they left. The Teretz, so the Torah Amor says, We told that God took us on a circuitous route, and that's when we encountered the sea. And that's when we told that the bones of Yosef were there. Why are they connected? Why the juxtaposition? Because Moshe understood and knew. When he looks and he reflects and he says, In what merit will we cross the sea? With what merit did we survive? Oh, Mara, 
Arona she Yosef ra. He saw the coffin of Yosef. Vayanas b'schus vayanas v'yatsa achutza. Shamru say anes lahapel atzma lenilus. V'lachen amar she Ramosh she Yehochem derech Yamsuf. Amar roi likach atzmas Yosef imi laavor hayam. Moshe knew I better grab the bones. I better grab the coffin. Not just the atzmos, the bones, the atzmos, the essence of Yosef. Jewish people were latching on not just to his bones, his atzmos, but his atzmos, his essence, who he was, his core. Because only by latching on to that would they find that they would survive in that merit of Mesiris Nefesh. We're living in a generation at a time of great comfort. Geshmak to be a yid, it's wonderful, it's pleasurable, it's enjoyable. And the pendulum has swung far in that direction and it needs to. As Rav Moshe famously said, we've quoted it many, many times, that we will lose the next generation if we talk about Shvetz Zayin Yid, how difficult it is to be a Jew. But we also can't promise how convenient or comfortable it is to be a Jew. It's not always convenient. It's not always comfortable. It takes a mesiris nefesh. Paying for kosher food, paying for Jewish education, davening with a minion, navigating a virus, a pandemic. It's not easy to be an observant Jew. It's not easy. It takes mesiris nefesh. But if you want ka'ula, if you want redemption, if you want to bring about a change, if you want a miracle, we have to be the miracle. We have to precipitate the miracle. We have to cause the miracle. And how does that happen? With mysterious nefesh, with selflessness, and with sacrifice. And who is the image of that? Yosef HaTzadik. And that's why it's specifically his bones that inspire. Not just a cute play on words. Vayanas achutza, he ran outside. Vayar hayam vayanas. And therefore the sea ran and split. More than a cute play of words, it's a reflection of a much deeper essence. But then Rav Juk offers a second explanation. And he says, Yosef is the symbol and the sign of holiness and sanctity. And this Mida of Yesod, the foundation of who we are, is holiness and sanctity. He took us out, we've been developing this in the last few weeks, that God took us out of Egypt, not just to be some secular political entity, not just to be some free nation, but He took us out to be a people with a mission and a mandate, a covenantal community who strive for holiness. We don't live for happiness, we live for holiness. And therefore, the symbol of holiness is Yosef, who is willing to give up so much in order to remain and to be holy. Kedoshim to you, ki kadosh ani Hashem. We are to be holy because God is holy. And who is the sign and who is the symbol? Who is the icon of holiness in a world of moral decay, corruption, and decadence? In a world in which it's live and let live and anything goes and be a pleasure seeker, whatever makes you happy. Who is the symbol and sign, the icon of, of holiness? It's none other than Yosef. And that's what Yosef says. And that's the promise. Take me out. Your redemption will come when you incorporate me into you. Don't just take out my atzmos, my bones, but take out my atzmos, that we should be inspired in a world that is increasingly morally complicated to remain clear and steadfast, to have our conviction that we don't live for happiness, we live for holiness, and to strive, to strive for the midah of, of Yosef, which is Yesod, to be holy. We're still in the period of Shovavim, Shmoz Ve'ira Bo and Yisro and Mishpatim, these parashios, an acronym for Shovavim, Shuvu Banim Shovavim, and it's a time that we're working on elevating ourselves to strive for more, to strive for holiness, to be careful what we look at, what we think about, where we go, how we speak, what emails and WhatsApp posts and pictures that we, fo- that we forward, that we're capable and we are, we are so much more, that it's beneath us. So why did Yosef need to come with us? Because the whole reason we came out was not just to be free, not just a freedom from, but a freedom to. And the freedom was not a freedom from, a freedom to hold holiness, not a freedom to happiness, 
of freedom to holiness. And who is that sign? Who is that role model? It's none other than Yosef HaTzadik. It's introduced, the uh, Shira, and it's also introduced every day in our davening, which was supposed to do with joy and excitement and a smile. Vayosha Hashem Bayomos Yom Yad Mitzrayim, our Parsha, Parakidalad, Pasuk. Lamed, Hashem, that they rescued the Jewish people from the Egyptians. We saw our enemy, our adversary, drown on the other edge of the sea. We saw his outstretched hand. They believed in Hashem and in, his Moshe, and in Moshe, his faithful servant. Did it ever occur to you? I think we've mentioned this in the past, but we haven't really elaborated on it. They believed in Moshe's loyal servant. It's as if we're saying that in one breath. As Hashem, Vayamiru, they had faith, Bashem, Uva Moshe Avdo, as if they're on the same playing field. They had faith in God and in his loyal servant Moshe. What do you mean there's God and his loyal servant Moshe? There's God, there's no close second. There is no second. Says Rav Druk, only now do they believe in Moshe. So there's really two questions. Number one, why are we describing a belief or a faith in Moshe similar to a belief or faith in Hashem? But moreover, only now? Moshe was the one, the, ma- the messenger, the agent, who brought about the ten plagues, ten miracles. Only with the splitting of the sea are they impressed with Moshe. Till now, uh, I'm not sure we'll give you a lifetime contract. Till now, good drasha, good life cycle event, good job taking care of the shul through a pandemic. But I'm not really sure. Not really sure. It's only now with Kriyas Yamsuf that Vayaminu Bashem of Moshe Avdo, only now do they say, you're the man. We've got complete trust and faith in you. Rav Druk quotes the rush. Rabbeinu Usher, in his parish from the Torah, quotes from his father. We know, the Pasuk says, Place your hand on the sea and split it. What did Moshe not use? He didn't use his tool. Moshe did not use his staff. That fateful staff, that mata, the mata, which caused so many other miracles to occur, Moshe did not use his staff. He went directly with his hand. Because the Jewish people were cynical, even then, even the beneficiaries of miracles were cynical and skeptical. And they said, Moshe is a nothing. He's not the one doing any miracles. He's not so special. You know what is the source of the miracles? Moshe's staff. If any of us had the staff, or we were holding the staff, we could also bring about the miracles. He's got a magic staff. He's got this staff, this uh, cane, He's got this branch, and whoever has it, whoever holds it, they too could bring about these miracles. So what happens here, says the Rush, this is the first miracle being done without the staff. This is the first miracle that's Yadcha. It's his hand, no staff. And therefore the people now trust, Vayamina Bashem, Uva Moshe Avdo. It is specifically here and specifically now that they gain a faith and a trust in Moshe because they realize there is no magic staff. And it's not coming through anything else other than the hand of other than the hand of Hashem. Okay, Torah continues and it tells us a story. We come out the other side, we sing, Miriam and the women sing. How do they have instruments? Because they had faith, optimism, hope, because they knew we were going to be free. And therefore they carried those instruments with them. And now we move over in the parasha. It doesn't take long until the people begin to complain. Until they complain. He takes them away from Yamsuf and they go three days. 
Three days without water. We know that we learned from here, Ein Mayim El Torah, it was three days without Torah. That's why we lane, we read the Torah. Monday, Thursday, Shabbos, we can't go three days without Torah. If you go online, you can listen earlier this year in the afternoon, Kolal. We give a series of shirim about Kriya Torah, the Torah reading, based on this Pasuk of Lo Matsumayim. But the simple understanding is, Lo Matsumayim, they couldn't find water. They come to a place called and they couldn't drink water from there because it was bitter. And they call the place Mara. And the people complain to Moshe and Moshe cries out to God and the whole story. But there's a few disturbing things going on in this narrative in the Torah. Why is the name of the place in which the episode occurred called Mara bitterness? After all, if we're recalling the miracle God did, what happens after they complain? God puts something in the water and he transforms it to be sweet. So the place should be called Matok. It's a place of sweetness. It's a place of positive memories. Why is it called Murrah? Why would we want to, in perpetuity, remember the bitterness of the water? Moreover, the reaction of the Jewish people is very perplexing. The truth is this episode is not an isolated event. It's repeated numerous times in our Parsha. And as the narrative progresses further, as people become incorrigible. Jewish people just experienced the greatest revelation in the history of mankind. They saw God. They had unprecedented miracles, the Yad Hashem, 10 plagues splitting of the sea, freed from bondage, from oppression, from persecution. How is it possible that so quickly they forgot everything that happened to them? And instead of being grateful, they became uh, complainers. Instead of realizing their freedom, let alone every drop and morsel of food they had to be grateful for, they complained incessantly and unremittently, relentlessly, critical complaining. How did it happen? There's a phenomenon psychologists call the missing tile syndrome. Person in a beautifully tiled room, our eyes are not drawn to the mosaic or the ornate tiles or the detailed labor, but it's natural that a person, their eyes are drawn to the missing tile. In the whole room, our tendency is to be drawn not to what's there, but to what's missing. We fixate on the deficiency and not the beauty. And perhaps the Torah is describing, has an amazing insight. What do you mean, what was bitter? I might have said this last year. If I did, I apologize. But I love this Kotzker. It's one of my favorites. Kimarim Haim is not talking about the water. Says the Kotzker, Kimarim Haim is describing the people. Marim Haim, the people were bitter and disgruntled and critical and judgmental and dismissive and dissatisfied and negative. Kimarim Haim, what was bitter was not the water. What was bitter was the people. You see, if you're positive and you always see the good, then everything will taste sweet. But if you're bitter and miserable and fabisana, then even that which is sweet, you will taste and you will see and you will describe as bitter. And so Rabbi Shleim of Khartkov explains the appropriate name is Mara, the bitterness, because the miracle was not by substituting the water. The miracle was the people. Vayimtiku amayim, the very same water became sweet. So the place was called Mara to remind us that when we begin to draw, when we begin to feel a sense of negativity or criticism, then we need to transform it to sweetness. It's up to us. The choice is ours. It's not the substance, the object, the experience. It's the attitude we bring to it, which will determine how we remember that experience. I'll tell you one last word in our abbreviated cheer. And again, I thank you for allowing me to offer only an abbreviated cheer this morning. Hope everyone's having a wonderful and safe and healthy yeshiva week. It's at the end of our parsha. Amalek, Amalek make their first appearance. They attacked us while we're weak, while we're vulnerable, while they're fragile. Amalek, who are all about chance and randomness and coincidence, Amalek, who are all about cynicism, and the koach of, uh, they are the, Amalek is the attitude of eh, as opposed to we, who are the attitude of wow, to see Hashem's hand everywhere. So Torah tells us, Moshe Yeshua, Go choose men, to fight with Amalek. 
Vayas Yoshua Kasher Amar, he goes to fight Moshe Aaron Vachur. These three go. And Rashi tells us, Moshe Aaron Vachur, Mikan Latana Shatrichan Shlosh Lava Lafnateva, Yom Kippur night. You have three people who stand on the bima, on Yom Kippur with the chazan. It's modeled after this image that Moshe is davening and Aaron and Chur are there as they fight. Who's Chur, Rashi says? Miriam's son. Miriam is married to Kalev, and they have a son named Chur. Why does Rashi have to tell us specifically here Chur's lineage? Torah tells us Moshe, Aaron, and Chur go al Rosh But why do we have to be told Chur's lineage? Why do we have to be reminded who he comes from? Sort of Druk says the following. He says, because Moshe, Aaron, and Chur are the three pillars the Jewish people rely on. We know the world stands on Torah, Avodah, and Gemilas Chasadim. Moshe's Torah. Torah's Moshe. Moshe gives us the Torah. And Aaron is Avoda. Aaron is the Amr of Avoda. The Kohen, Avoda, in the Mikdash. And Chur, the son of Miriam. Who's Miriam? Miriam is Pua. Miriam is the one who does the tremendous, extraordinary chesed. So Moshe, Aaron, Moshe, Aaron and Chur our Torah, Avodah, Gemilas, Chasadim, if we're going to defeat Amalek, if we're going to defeat cynicism and sarcasm and skepticism, if we're going to defeat atheism and agnosticism, if we're going to defeat those voices, then we need to engage the Moshe, Aaron, and Chur, and all of us, the Torah, Avodah, and Gemilas, Chasadim. Till next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. Thank you for joining us for the abbreviated share. We'll continue tomorrow. We'll have our full shiurim back with 8.15, 10 minutes of meaning. We still have Sharm, 8.45, living with the Muna. Tomorrow night, amazing guest on Behind the Beam at 9 p.m. Have a phenomenal day.